Hello and welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize all sectors of our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification Policy with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Farewell Fossil Gas, Hello Better Buildings, a Building Electrification Status Update. So we're shifting gears from our focus on transportation over the last few episodes, and we're going to get an overview of the state of play of building electrification. We know that over 100 million residential housing units and commercial buildings burn fossil fuels for space or water heating and cooking, contributing over 10% to U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. And we're adding just over a million new homes every month right now, and more than half of those are built with fossil gas heating or appliances. Now, because the average appliance lasts 10 to 15 years and most buildings last for at least 50 years, every new appliance or structure burning gas or fossil fuels really locks in higher emissions and costs for decades to come. Beyond that, there are serious health impacts associated with burning fossil fuels in indoor spaces. Energy Innovations modeling shows that electrifying all new buildings by 2025 and all new appliances by 2030 is essential for reaching net zero by 2050. But how do we do this? And where is this happening? And who's leading the way? To help us answer these questions, I'm pleased to be joined today by two esteemed colleagues and building electrification experts. We're going to learn more about various state and local efforts underway to get buildings off of gas and running on clean electricity. So first we have Denise Grab, who's a manager with RMI's Carbon-Free Building Team, where she works to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from buildings in the West and across the U.S., she brings over a decade of experience in advancing clean energy. She served as the Western Regional Director at the Institute for Policy Integrity at the, at the New York University School of Law. She's also written briefs for the U.S. Supreme Court and U.S. Court of Appeals. And she served as, as an adjunct professor at the New York University School of Law, also an associate with a major law firm and a law clerk for, the federal, for a federal district court judge. Denise, thank you so much for being with us here today and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And also with me today is a longtime colleague, Tyler Polson, who's a deputy director for the Building Electrification Institute, which is an organization that equips cities across North America with the knowledge, tools, and resources needed to accelerate the transition of building systems away from fossil fuels and towards high-efficiency electric options. There, Tyler focuses on helping cities develop critical state and utility partnerships while advancing policies that will accelerate building electrification across their regions. Tyler previously focused on clean energy and climate change solutions in local government sustainability offices with Salt Lake City and Park City, Utah. And he also has past experience in the finance sector. Welcome to the show, Tyler. It's great to connect with you again. I agree. Thanks for the opportunity, Sarah. Great. Well, I am very excited to uh, dig in with you both on this topic. We've been focused on transportation for the last several episodes, and we're now back on buildings. So let's start with you, Denise. Just to kind of recap for our listeners, uh, we did cover it in an earlier episode, but to just reiterate the importance of the topic today, why really must we decarbonize and electrify our buildings, and what role do energy codes play in that effort? Uh, sure, Sarah. So 
there's really no way to meet our climate targets without addressing emissions from buildings. Um, over 10% of emissions are from buildings right now, and building emissions are becoming an ever larger share of overall greenhouse gas emissions as the grid becomes cleaner. Um, and that's not even counting, 10% not even counting uh, leakage upstream from the gas distribution system. Um, so in order to take advantage of the cleaner grid, we need to electrify everything we can and the technology we need to electrify buildings is readily available, uh, just not widespread in its adoption yet. Uh, we have these great heat pumps that are actually better than gas furnaces. They're, they're two to three times more efficient than most the most efficient gas furnaces, and they can both heat and cool. Um, we also have heat pump water heaters that are tremendously efficient and provide other um, opportunities like the potential for... Uh, energy storage uh, in, in the right application. So, so we have these really great devices. We just need to get them out into the world. And energy codes, um, that is new construction codes, are important because they're a win-win-win. Um, it's actually cheaper to build new homes all electric. Um, we save money on construction. We save money on, um, on only having to install one uh, HVAC system instead of uh, both a heater and an air conditioner. We avoid pollution, both greenhouse gas and other types of harmful air pollution like nitrogen oxides. And then we avoid building out unnecessary gas infrastructure that will soon become stranded, stranded assets or drive up energy bills for ratepayers. Uh, we do need to electrify existing buildings to really solve the problem, but new construction is a crucial first step that helps us avoid digging the hole deeper as well as helps build the market and increase contractor familiarity with heat pump technology. Great. Well, well said and well summarized. Um, so yes, the emphasis on new construction is definitely critical, as you said, and California recently adopted a new building code for new construction and major retrofits, rather the California Energy Commission uh, took a first step there. Um, and it's kind of known as the 2022 California Energy Code. It represents a high bar for building codes, generally speaking, especially when you look across the landscape of building codes in our country, um, and definitely as a starting point for um, spurring an all-electric building stock eventually, but some kind of wish it would have gone further. Can you tell us a little bit more about the code and what it does and uh, kind of dig into some of the details there? Sure, happy to. Uh, so there are three main features of the code that help support cleaner and healthier all-electric buildings. Uh, all of these are groundbreaking. They're the first statewide code to do all of these things. So first, there's an all-electric ready requirement, um, which basically requires any fuel that's built or any new, um, new home that's built with gas to have the space and the electrical capacity to be electrified down the road. So this avoids a situation where someone would want to put in a heat pump water heater, for instance, down the road and might not have the space or electrical capacity to do so. Um, that's, that's, that's point one. Point two is that the code now strongly incentivizes electric construction, all electric construction, by including a heat pump in the energy modeling baseline for all new homes. It's probably the most technical <laughs> piece of the code. It gets a little wonky in there, but, um, but the basic idea is that um, it's sort of assumed that... Um, that there will be at least one all-electric appliance in each new home, either um, a heat pump water heater or a heat pump space heater, depending on the climate zone, 
And then um, basically the, the building um, developer will have to either uh, go with that default pathway or show uh, energy performance that's as good or better than that, um, than that heat pump. Uh, so, so it's a real strong presumption in favor of, of heat pumps in new buildings. And the third requirement is um, increased ventilation uh, for um, for homes that do have gas stoves. So, um, as we know, gas stoves uh, are a major source of nitrogen dioxide in homes um, that can uh, cause asthma in children, cause or exacerbate asthma in children. Uh, kids who, who grow up in a home with gas stoves are 42% more likely to have asthma symptoms than kids who grow up in homes with, homes with electric stoves. And the new code uh, requires additional ventilation for homes with gastos to to account for for that danger. Uh, so yeah, it was um, it's, it's a really great code with it with a huge um, huge step forward on all these fronts. That's great. So generally, you would say it's positive for electrification and decarbonization. Uh, were there any things you wish uh, would have been included in the code that did not get put, moved forward? Um, yeah, it's definitely a big step forward, definitely positive step. Uh, we do wish it had gone further. We and over uh, 220 other organizations and over 7,700 individuals had called on the um, California Energy Commission to adopt an all-electric baseline for the energy modeling. So requiring that or um, setting a presumption that both the water heater and the space heater would be a heat pump. Uh, that's what we had called for. We didn't quite get all the way there with, with this round, but did take a big step in that direction. And obviously we still need to address existing buildings and especially um, make sure that lower income communities receive the benefits and not the burdens of electrification. But that's not something that can be easily addressed through energy codes. We need other policies to do that. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear it. it's it's a positive move forward. And like I said, I th- I feel like it definitely sets a high bar uh, for the for other states and local governments across the country to consider emulating. And um, you know, code processes are very arcane, and <laughs> we touched on this in an earlier episode. It's not something that you know the average citizen is involved in typically. But it sounds like there was a, a huge. Uh, movement and campaign to get folks involved. Tell us a little bit more about the process in California. You know, who was, who was really involved and how, how the code really landed where it did. Uh, and, and feel free to share any, you know, juicy details uh, <laughs> that we may not have caught in our, uh, the news headlines. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, it was a long process. I think it, it kept getting <laughs> dragged out to be even longer. We started really trying to push, uh, the, the California Energy Commission to go all electric for the new code a little over a year ago. There was kind of a coalition of a few um, central NGOs that started working on this issue a bit over a year ago, including uh, RMI, Sierra Club, the Building Decarbonization Coalition, Earth Justice, NRDC. Uh, those were sort of probably the, the core group, and there were a number of other um, uh, groups representing businesses, including series, uh, several environmental justice groups, some leading architects and engineers, uh, several climate justice groups, and really, uh, you know, this, this was a part of the 220 organizations and over 7,700 individuals that I mentioned earlier who were engaged in this process. Uh, a little over a year and a half ago, we started 
conversations with um, the lead commissioner at the California Energy Commission working on these issues, Andrew McAllister, as well as CEC Chair uh, David Hochschild, and really started expressing to them the the need for um, for us to electrify as much as possible in in this round of the building code. We really can't keep digging the hole deeper. Uh, RMI put out an analysis last summer where we looked at kind of what the impacts would be of not going all electric in this building cycle. And, and we found that um, that by waiting three years till the next building cycle, which is what everyone was saying we had to do at the time, we would be emitting over 3 million tons of additional uh, greenhouse gases and would be uh, expending over $1 billion of unnecessary um money building out the gas infrastructure system. So it's really important to, to get action this code cycle and really not wait until 2025, which is what a lot of, um, at the time, CEC was, was saying they needed to do. And um, a lot of the interest groups like the Builders Association were saying that they needed more time to, to come to compliance. So, you know, really over time, uh, the, the building, Indus, uh, building Industry Association, CBIA, was initially in opposition. Uh, we're really concerned about the speed with which uh, we were pushing uh, for for the for the electrification of new construction. But eventually, after many many months of engagement, they eventually came out uh, neutral, even gently supportive at the final hearing. Um, really instrumental in this process of of getting the CEC and uh, to, to to supportive of of an all electric or supportive of electrification. Uh, focused code was uh, the California Air Resources Board, other state agencies and, and cities that had really started the trend here. So a number of cities in California had had implemented reach codes that basically started moving toward all electric new construction in, in the city's buildings. And it's a lot of work for a city to do that, right? They have to conduct analysis, um, both of the precise um, policy to implement. They have to conduct a cost analysis, and then they actually have to submit that proposal to the CEC for approval. So it's a you know each city has to do that on its own. Um, it's, it's a lot of work, and a lot of the cities that had implemented the codes, as well as ones who were thinking about doing so, wrote to the CEC, spoke out, and and talked about how important it was for the state to take leadership here, so that there wouldn't they wouldn't need to spend all this time and effort doing this work that really should be uh, could be done better at the state level. That's great. And um, where were the where were the gas utilities in the gas industry? Did they show up and, and advocate? Were they involved in the process, or did they remain on the sidelines? Yes, they were involved. They did they did show up. Uh, uh, SoCal Gas, in particular, was uh, was opposed to uh, all electric code here. Not surprising. They were one of maybe only two groups on the final meeting that were opposed to the code. It was really just. SoCal Gas and AHRI with dozens of folks supporting the CEC code on the final call, uh, final business meeting call. Um, but yeah, SoCal Gas really, they're concerned about, they, they need to keep building out the gas system and, and maintaining the gas system the way their business model is structured now. Uh, and it's really important for kind of more utilities to be more forward-looking like PG&E has been here. PG&E actually came out in favor of an all-electric uh, new construction code that's designed thoughtfully because they are they see the writing on the wall. They understand that um, 
that they need to transition away from gas infrastructure in order to meet the state's climate targets. And they are interested in thoughtful, uh, well-designed plans that will, that will help them wind down the system thoughtfully. It's, it's trickier, obviously, with, with single fuel utilities rather than dual fuel utilities. And um, it's definitely uh, a thorny issue that a lot of the single fuel utilities will have to, will have to work through as we need to meet our climate targets. Yeah. Thorny is a good way to put it. <laughs> um, well, thanks for that overview. I, I know a, a ton of folks were involved, and it was uh, quite a comprehensive push. And as you said, a lot of technical issues, you know, uh, the codes are written purposely to be technical in nature. They're covering health, safety, efficiency, energy use. And so they're, they're a very um, involved process. So, um, so kudos to you and others who were involved. What's next for California uh, in terms of either codes or electrification uh, in buildings? What, do you, what are you kind of planning for or expecting to see um, in either the next round of code updates or other pushes that you're aware of? Sure. Uh, well, California revises its uh, energy and building codes every, every three years. It does seem likely based on what we're hearing that that probably the baseline will be all electric for new construction for the 2025 code. I mean, that's yet to be seen, but it seems likely that it will go in that direction. And we also expect that more building types will be included in future updates. I also expect that we'll see more in the California Air Resources Board 2022 scoping plan about coordinated strategies for building decarbonization throughout the state, both for um, new buildings and existing buildings. So I expect there'll be a lot of action there as CARB develops their plan over the next year. And I also expect that the California Public Utilities Commission um, will be engaging with issues about how to thoughtfully wind down um, gas infrastructure in its gas transition proceeding that it has ongoing right now. Great. Well, so it sounds like you've got your, your hands full for uh a little while longer anyway. Um, so let's, and thank you so much, Denise. That's really helpful. And um, I want to shift gears just a little bit and Tyler, uh, ask you to talk a little bit more about the work you're doing with cities in the U.S. that are working to advance building electrification at the local level. Um, Denise mentioned that there's a big movement in California uh, at the local government level. I know you're working with other cities in the West. So give us a high level overview of uh, what you're working on right now. Yeah, so at the Building Electrification Institute, we, we collaborate with leading cities to help them with programs and policies that advance electrification. And really, our vision is to transition away from burning fossil fuels in buildings and do so equitably so that the benefits are, are truly shared among community members. And uh, we recognize that doing this is going to take an intentional focus as many lower income households, renters, and even entire neighborhoods have historically been left behind in the clean energy transition. And so kind of looking at those linkages of energy reliability, participation, whether that's policy or workforce, pollution exposure, and then um, certainly last but not least, energy affordability these all connect to equity and, and also along racial equity lines and, and highlight opportunities to do this work in cities. And so now in thinking about how we do the work, BEI, our, our organization, grew out of some early efforts among cities to collaborate and network among themselves on building electrification. So a group of four cities initially came together 
Boulder, Burlington, Washington, D.C., and New York City. And they saw a tremendous value in kind of networking and cross-pollinating different program and policy ideas as they were all kind of independently looking for ways to scale efficient heat pump technologies within their communities. And so with the success of those early efforts and, and those cities really recognizing a formal need for an organization to help not only them, but more and more cities across the country um, lead on these issues, BEI came about. And, and we're currently a small team. We're about five staff, all of whom formerly worked in city sustainability offices. So I used to work for the city of Salt Lake City as the climate and energy manager. And now we're in these roles as subject matter experts, really working alongside city staff in about a dozen cities as their partners. Our approach is really on a year-over-year basis, we connect and, and locally envision uh, essentially a new scope of work based on what the needs are. Uh, is it research related? Is it community or stakeholder engagement on building electrification? Do we need to start envisioning new policies or programs? Um, and so we work with cities based on where they're at to help address those needs um, and, and just elevate the solutions alongside community partners. Awesome. That sounds like really great work and very fitting given your background. Um, of the cities you're working with right now, kind of a two-part question, what's really compelling them to lead on building electrification? And are there a few highlights or noteworthy efforts underway that you can share? On the motivation front, Denise touched on this a little bit earlier. She had mentioned you know, roughly around 10% of greenhouse gas emissions coming from burning gas in buildings. And when we look at cities in, in more detail, um, a couple examples here, like Denver on a community-wide basis, burning gas in homes and buildings creates about 21% of its community carbon footprint. In Salt Lake City, where I used to work, it's, it's about a quarter of local greenhouse gas emissions. And, and, and not only are those notable um, in terms of the carbon footprint and need to address that, but the relative share of those emissions are going to continue to grow over time as the electric grid gets cleaner. Uh, and, and that's just going to put a bigger spotlight on burning gas in buildings and motivating cities to take action. But I would point out, and Denise touched on this as well, that it's not just climate that is motivating cities to move away from gas. It's also public health. RMI has done a lot of great work on indoor air quality impacts and risks. Um, among the many uh, compelling statistics in this space, I saw some EPA research where they noted that gas cooking appliances or homes with gas cooking appliances have approximately 50% to over 400% higher nitrogen dioxide pollution concentrations indoors compared to homes with electric cooking appliances. So there's, there's a big kind of indoor air quality motivation. But there's also a, a notable outdoor air quality motivation with, with NOx emissions, uh, creating ground-level ozone and those coming from gas appliances. So I think it's you know, climate, climate issues, it's public health and pollution issues. Um, but I think really critically what's making these concerns feel actionable is the growing awareness of efficient electric technologies and their relative affordability to gas options. In the past, a lot of people had experience with electric resistance technology, so either space heating or water heating or traditional electric cooking options. And, and when you look at, in terms of space heating and water heating, at that 100% uh, efficiency that comes with, with resistance, it, it's at a major disadvantage to gas appliances. 
And so as in the U.S., we start to become more familiar with technologies that have been around for quite some time in Asia and Europe, um, these efficient heat pumps that can operate at three to four hundred percent efficiency by moving heat rather than just generating it. Uh, we've been uh, energized by what that means for addressing that big carbon footprint that I mentioned earlier and doing so at scale in a way that's truly uh, affordable. So I think that that technology awareness coupled with what we've already had anxiety about in terms of those risks is what's uh, creating a lot of momentum in the near term for cities to act. And and then kind of getting to the second part of your question, um, I, I, I think that this is a newer space for a lot of city sustainability offices where we've seen great progress on renewable energy, on efficiency, and even electric vehicles and scaling those through infrastructure and other solutions, but we're now starting to see cities um, pay attention to and invest in heat pumps and, and electrification solutions. And so a couple highlights, the city of Denver pretty recently just released their renewable heating and cooling plan, which looks at the existing built environment and highlights some affordable ways to transition um, away from gas, in some instances only partially, while why, why you're retaining gas backup, but moving to heat pumps for most of the energy needs. Um, in Salt Lake City and a lot of other places, an air quality emphasis is being used to socialize the possibilities of electrification. And we're looking at both indoor and outdoor quality kind of risks and community values and, and trying to elevate electrification as a, as a priority solution. And then Denise touched on this, but in California, I mean, San Jose is one of BEI's cities that we work with, and they were a pioneer in terms of passing all electric code and moving forward that type of construction where it's um, essentially the new low-hanging fruit in, in the energy space is all electric new construction where you can pick your technologies up front, um, install them in most cases at a lower cost to building a dual fuel building that burns gas. And then also from an operational standpoint, be really competitive, if not save money month over month by having efficient electric appliances. That's, that's great. And yeah, I think, you know, there's so much growth happening in the West in particular, and the emphasis on the new buildings that are going up uh, is clearly an opportunity that must be seized. So I'm glad to hear there's so much focus in that space, albeit uh, at times an uphill battle. Um, and, you know, to that end, there has been a lot of pushback from the gas and fossil fuel industries, uh, as well as the building industries uh, on electrification. And this is a question for you both. How, what what strategies and tactics are you seeing cities use to really counter that opposition effectively? Uh, and Tyler, I'll start with you, and then Denise, you can weigh in. Yeah, you know what we're seeing is I think the gas industry reacting to what's a very glaring and and positive opportunity, which is all electric new construction, where. You know, BEI's conducted analyses, as has RMI, as have a lot of other third parties that show lower upfront costs and show uh, lower, if not competitive, operating costs from going all electric. And so to that end, a, a major legislative push we've seen across the country is for what are known as these gas ban preemption bills. And, and what these are is where the state passes a law that essentially preempts or prevents um, a local government from passing all electric code requirements. They say you cannot move in any way that restricts gas use in new construction. And so 19 states across the country have adopted this form of preemption legislation and all have done so in the last two years. 
Um, for cities, the main arguments are, you know, it's really about local control, the ability to act in line with our community values, protecting public health, um, and then also, you know, ensuring the best available technologies are installed and affordability for our residents. But, you know, at the end of the day, the gas lobby is very powerful and influential. Uh, it, it's not all that challenging for cities and counties to envision arguments to make a compelling case against these types of preemption laws. But um, it's a very different thing altogether to actually influence those outcomes in a lobbying sense when you're going against the gas industry. And so uh, I think we've struggled on that front. Um, a lot of great arguments have been made. We've elevated the, the potential that comes with, with moving to electric solutions. But at the same time, um, largely in these Republican-controlled states, we've lost a lot of ground with these preemption laws. Indeed. Denise, what about you? What, what are you seeing that's effective in countering this opposition and this uh, gas push? Um, I think what has been the most effective is really focusing on what the science shows us. The recent IPCC report shows that basically we need to stop burning fossil fuels immediately if we're to avoid the worst effects of climate change. And building electrification is a necessary pathway to align with what is needed. So really the, the cities that have been successful, the states that have been successful in moving forward on this uh, have, have really grounded their analysis in the science, in the facts, uh, in the cost effectiveness of building electrification as a pathway to align our, uh, our cities and states with a low carbon future, with deep decarbonization future. Uh, Looking at the pathways that the gas industry is putting forward, a lot of <clears throat> a lot of the gas industry folks are putting forward plans for increasing the production of what they call uh, renewable natural gas, uh, which is really biogas generated from um, you know uh, dairy farming operations and, and uh, other types of facilities. They are talking about scaling up hydrogen as an alternative fuel source and really looking at the data that even the data that they're presenting, there is not enough of either of those uh, of their renew, quote unquote renewable natural gas to meet the demand needs of the economy as a whole. And, and hydrogen is still uh, being developed as, as a effective tool to address these, to address uh, decarbonization in buildings really both of those solutions, if you look at the facts, if you look at the analysis, they would be dramatically more expensive than electrifying in order to decarbonize the building sector. So I think really just focusing on the facts, focusing on what the data says, and really building up a network of allies uh, and partnerships with impacted communities have really been crucial to help advance, um, advance these policies across cities and, and states. Great. Yeah. And we don't have quite enough time today to dig in on renewable natural gas and hydrogen, but I foresee a future episode uh, to touch on those topics because um, they are a bit um, mystical. There's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of mythology there. Um, let me let me shift gears and ask you both, because you've both touched on it in, in your comments, what steps are really being taken to ensure that lower and fixed income households, including uh, you know renters and multifamily units um, and disadvantaged communities, are able to participate and really benefit from the electrification movement? And uh, Denise, I'll start with you. 
Great. Um, yeah, this is an incredibly vital question. It really is essential to ensure that lower income and fixed income households, as well as renters, um, low income communities, communities of color, are really able to to get these benefits from building electrification. The cost benefits that uh, Tyler talked about, talked about earlier, the energy bill savings, as well as resiliency benefits, uh, the availability of air conditioning in a heat pump space heater that might not have been available to communities before that, that needed it, um, as well as health benefits from eliminating combustion and pollution in and around, in and around our homes. So what folks have been looking at have been various sorts of financial support, um, incentive programs to help uh, well, and continues with that transition. There are a couple of programs in California that exist already, uh, the build program and the tech program that are focused on helping to support especially lower income households to transition. Uh, that funding is not nearly enough to, to really do, do all of what's need to be, needed to be done. Um, we have money, hopefully, fingers crossed, coming from the federal government soon to the states as part of the budget reconciliation package that will hopefully help support this kind of transition, especially in affordable housing. Uh, so we look forward to states being able to partner with the federal government to um, get these get this funding to communities that need it. Um, there's also innovative financing programs that are that are under consideration, um, such as tariff on bill financing is one solution that has been proposed uh, and lots of engagement with utilities and public utilities commissions about what those sorts of programs might look like. So it's also really crucial that that groups representing lower income households and environmental justice communities and other other um, other stakeholders are, are involved in the policy making process and really driving the policy that they're at the table uh, and, and really driving the conversation about how these decisions get made and how these resources get allocated. Um, that, that their views are centered in the process rather than uh, just be an afterthought. Right. Yes. All really super important to the process. And um, Tyler, what about you? What are you seeing or uh, aware of to ensure an equitable transition? Denise alluded to this, but I think that systems thinking mindset where you start to view the whole home or apartment as, as kind of an opportunity and just really acknowledge that affordability and a healthy living space really starts with housing more generally and not just at the utility bill level. And so uh, a few things that we're helping cities do on this front, first and foremost, is to understand their building stock, the existing buildings that are in place, uh, apartments versus single-family homes, and then right alongside that, the underlying economics of moving away from the existing heating and you know, space and water heating systems and over to efficient heat pump solutions. And so by doing those analyses that look, you know, lay of the land, what the building stock looks like, even overlaying things like income in different neighborhoods, neighborhoods, pollution exposure, those sorts of things, and then having that inform the follow through where you're focusing your outreach and engagement efforts, where you're encouraging utility activity with incentives programs, uh, those sorts of things to move towards efficient heat pump technologies. But I, but I think uh, within the broader residential space, we are seeing a heightened focus on multifamily properties. And that, that's largely driven by equity considerations, uh, both that's where we see renters and a lot of lower income households, but also really amazing opportunities in terms of the economies of scale that come with apartment and condo buildings and, and the ability to benefit the most households as possible with electrification. 
And so to that end, BEI uh, earlier this year published a series of multifamily retrofit playbooks with guidance for city staff and stakeholders on how to electrify those properties. We've also seen groups like the Building Energy Exchange, Building Energy Exchange out of New York, also publish a playbook for for multifamily retrofits, and and then a really good partner out in California, the Association for Energy Affordability, where they've done a lot of on the ground work electrifying multifamily buildings along with providing efficiency benefits. So that focus on multifamily is is a prime area of interest of cities and others that are concerned with equity. Can I add one tiny uh, piece building on what Tyler just was talking about? Um, the AEA program and other, other pilot programs are, are wonderful in terms of helping to demonstrate the possibility of scaling up retrofits for affordable multifamily housing at the scale and speed necessary to help support these households. Uh, RMI has actually been involved in some of these programs in Central Valley in California and, and other places throughout the country with our, with our Realize program. We've been working with AEA, um, and, uh, and the Department of Energy and, uh, California Energy Commission to work on, um, scalable, affordable multifamily retrofits, um, based on the energy sprung model coming out of the Netherlands, uh, which is about modular retrofits that can be installs more efficiently and effectively and quickly um, and can really scale up uh, retrofits for multifamily housing in an affordable way. So that's, that's the thing we're working on. I'm really excited to continue to partner with AA and others on that work. That's, that's great. And uh, I'll throw in one more um, shout out to a recent report called the Flipside Report. And it's a, a white paper on targeted geographic electrification in California's gas transition. It was done by Common Spark Consulting uh, with the Building Decarbonization Coalition. And they offer up a lot of um, helpful suggestions and recommendations and strategies on how to actually uh, target electrification in vulnerable communities, you know, dovetailing with weatherization programs already in existence, um, accelerating investments in what what are called non-pipeline alternatives, and basically leveraging the regulatory space in which utilities are uh, subject to the the rules of the various state commissions, and um, really continuing to focus on kind of planning and investments and making sure they're prudent. So, lots of great stuff there. I'll I'll include that in the. Uh, the show notes, um, but lots of great resources you guys have mentioned too. So it sounds like people are really starting to roll up sleeves and think about, think about this and problem solve in a more tangible way, which is great. Um, so let's, let's uh, maybe surface to the 30,000 foot view um, in the months ahead or the year ahead. What are you expecting to see or hoping to see progress on in the building electrification space, either for new buildings or existing buildings? And Tyler, I'll start with you. Well, you just touched on this, Sarah, but I hope to see a lot of progress and evolution in terms of state regulatory rules and how we govern energy utilities. The Environmental Defense Fund, RMI, the Regulatory Assistance Project, among others, have published fantastic guidance over the last two years on how to evolve our regulations to better align with climate ambitions and, and help electrify buildings. And I think um, an experience when I come to mind that comes to mind when I think about the current lay of the land and how we're doing this work is it's like 
when you're at the mall um, and, and you were a kid and you were trying to walk up a downward escalator and kind of no matter how fast you walked, you were always being pulled back to your starting place. And to some degree, I feel like that is what we're doing with some of our energy work and investments. When we have legacy incentives, uh, lacking rate design, infrastructure investments, and kind of other policy being directed by, by state regulatory outcomes that are counter to what we need to accomplish on the climate front. And so um, we really need to turn the tide and, and, and put the wind at our backs with this building electrification work. And hopefully we start to see some meaningful breakthroughs in a number of states, both conservative as well as as more progressive states. And, and we have these these mileposts that we can look to to say, let's let's go forward and um, make the most out of all the money that's going to flow into building infrastructure and, and kind of set up the market conditions that are needed to make sure that's sustained above and beyond whatever federal investments occur in the near term. Um, a couple other quick things that, you know, the other essential step, new construction. I, I, I said it was a low-hanging fruit, and I definitely think that is the case. You can do in, in many instances, all electric new construction more affordably and, and have great bill outcomes and then put in the best available technology. So hopefully we continue to see what occurred in California and has started to occur in some other states just grow across the whole country and, and all electric new construction becomes a norm in the coming years. And then um, finally, just the different technology breakthroughs, cold climate heat pumps, plug in 120 volt heat pump water heaters, um, kind of all of this wonky stuff that are the remaining puzzle pieces to make this work for a lot of different property types and a lot of different climate zones around the country. Well, those are all great. 100% on all of those. Uh, Denise, what about you? What are you hoping to see progress on in the coming months or year ahead? Also 100% on everything Tyler just said. I think those are all crucial pieces and really excited to uh, work with BI and many other partners in states and cities to get that get those things done. Uh, beyond the new construction codes, um, and we are seeing movement in a number of other states and cities on that front. We're seeing Washington starting to move on commercial buildings right now. There, there, there are some potentially pro-electrification measures in that uh, code cycle. Um, or we're seeing movement in other states. We, I would expect that how that federal money, uh, fingers crossed that I mentioned coming from the uh, budget reconciliation package, how that gets distributed and uh, and applied in states will be really crucial for for building these markets, getting technologies to lower income folks who, who need them and really making sure we can scale up this transition as, as quickly as possible. That will be a really crucial piece of this. A lot of the state energy offices, I'm sure, will have their hands full uh, in, in getting that, those funds out there into the world, state, state energy and state um, housing offices. Um, and then the other piece that we're really looking at are looking at new policy approaches to phase out gas appliances at the end of life. So making sure that when water heaters and furnaces burn out, as they do over time, every every 10 to 15 years or so, um, that we're not... Uh, putting new gas appliances in, into homes at that point, really trying to get people to start uh, looking toward heat pump alternatives to to gas as they're looking for replacements and really trying to accelerate that process as much as possible. So among other things, we're looking at the possibility for uh, air regulators to address emissions from gas appliances. We're seeing the Bay Area Air Quality Management District 
uh, looking at the possibility of a uh, lower zero uh, emission standard on gas appliances that they're considering in the upcoming months. So really looking at opportunities to encourage the replacement of gas appliances with lower no emitting alternatives at the end of life. So expect that to be an exciting area over the next uh, months and years. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you mentioned it, but certainly all, I think, fingers are crossed on this uh, budget reconciliation process going well for a lot of uh, the initiatives under consideration. But one of them is, of course, a big push on electrification. And um, just as a flag for listeners who might want to learn more, um, just last month, I guess in July, we're now in September. Oh my gosh. In July, uh, the zero emissions home act was introduced, um, by representative Kathy Castor and representative Paul Tonko. And, you know, it's moving forward through this process and there are a lot of co-sponsors and there's a, an effort to, to get that included or, uh, advance something that would provide, uh, incentives for, households to electrify and also address those electric upgrade costs. So keep an eye on that one. Um, certainly promising. Um, so I want to, I want to come back to really, uh, you know, at a more personal level. Um, I'm curious if either of you have attempted to electrify your homes, um, and, or been involved in, in efforts to electrify where you live. And if you can share any part of your experiences and Tyler, I'll, I'll start with you. So my wife and I moved to Dallas, Texas two years ago and uh, shortly thereafter bought bought a townhome. And it, it turned out to be a fantastic opportunity because this townhome had a air conditioner and a gas furnace, both of which were over 25 years old and, and rusting and falling apart. And so I thought, wow, this is fantastic. Uh, put kind of walk the walk here and, and move towards an air source heat pump for all of our heating and cooling needs in this townhome. I intentionally went out and got four bids from HVAC contractors in the Dallas area, all of whom marketed that they, they were heat pump installers. Um, and in going through the process, I didn't disclose kind of my role and how I work on building electrification. Instead, I wanted to experience what um, any other homeowner or household would have experienced with these contractors. And uh, what occurred was just a major epiphany. You know, three of the four contractors really tried to dissuade me from moving towards um, efficient electric solutions and said, why would you move away from gas? You've already got a gas furnace. It's just one-to-one. Let's swap it out and, you know, move on with, with our lives. Um, ultimately, I, I was able to find a manufacturer-certified installer who came in, looked at the property, said, this is easy. We can and should move you towards uh, an efficient electric heat pump system. And we can do so at a comparable cost to what it would be to, to put in a gas furnace and an air conditioner, and your utility bills are going to um, still be affordable. And so we ultimately went with that manufacturer, um, have loved it for the last year plus, survived um, winter storm Uri just fine, um, apart from when the power was out, but when the power was on, we powered through with air source heat pump even in the cold conditions. But, um, you know, I said it really was an epiphany in terms of just experiencing that living room conversation with a contractor and having them um, in most instances try to dissuade me from electrifying, even when I know that the technology is available, is awesomely suited to do what I need it to do in the Dallas climate. Um, but it still took a lot of work from my end. So it just elevated 
these supply chain considerations and making sure we've got the right incentives and motivations for contractors along with uh, the right information for, for decision makers on the household side if we want to do this work. Yeah, pretty fascinating. Uh, <laughs> Denise, how about you? Have you had any experiences with electrification personally? So I just moved into a new place, so we're just starting to think about these questions now. Um, so far, what we have done is uh, there, there was a, uh, there's, there's a gas range in the place and we've actually turned off the gas to that gas range and have replaced it with portable induction hobs. So as we mentioned earlier, there are um, substantial amounts of nitrogen dioxide that are released into our homes anytime the gas stove is on. So we really wanted to make sure that we're, we're avoiding that. And so uh, bought these portable induction hobs. They've been great uh, and and uh, really wonderful. All my housemates have enjoyed those as well. And actually, it turned out we were worried that the that the um, the oven was was gas as well. But it actually turned out it was a uh, an electric convection oven. Apparently, the fa- the super fancy ranges actually are often electric oven gas stovetop because electric actually bakes better for ovens. So we're very excited to discover that it was an electric oven and a um, gas stove top so we could actually just turn off the gas to the whole unit. So that's been wonderful. We're, we're starting to look into the possibility of getting many splits and hopefully our contractor experience in the Bay Area will be a little more positive <laughs> than the than experience in Dallas. But um, yeah, I definitely agree on the need to make sure that we have the right contractor incentives, as Tyler said, and, and uh, education programs to really make sure that people are getting the right information and opportunities as they look to modernize their homes. That's great. Denise, we, we share that experience. I've had a gas stove for quite some time, and it does not have a vent at all, uh, so it's definitely out of code compliance. It is unhealthy. Uh, so I went ahead and purchased a, a portable two-burner induction um, cooktop, and it's been so great. I've loved it. It cooks really, really well. Everything's like I don't burn stuff anymore. So <laughs> one of the best benefits of an induction stove is it stays at the same temperature. You are not, you know, subject to the whims of your um, perhaps poor cooking skills, which I'm working on. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a, a great shift for me. And then I have um, a pretty old water heater, gas water heater in the basement, and it's getting to its end of life. And before it goes out and before, you know, I end up with water in the basement or some other catastrophe, I'm going to um, plan a a swap out with a a heat pump here in the next probably year or two, depending on uh, how fast my, um, my savings jar fills up. So that is definitely in the works and excited for all of that. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time here. And as always, I thoroughly enjoy these conversations. Every guest I bring on the show has such a wealth of knowledge and uh, experience. And you two are certainly no exception to that. And it's been great to chat with you. Uh, signing off, I'll, I'll invite you to offer any advice or recommendations to our listeners, either those who are wanting to electrify where they live or support uh, local or state government efforts. And Tyler, I'll start with you. Yeah, I can't can't finish without saying, giving a plug for our, our website. So beicities.org. And we recently just published a whole range of resources, including some of the work products for cities that I mentioned earlier that, that map 
the built environment and the economics of electrifying, among many other things. So beicities.org and check out our resources information under the About tab. But in addition to that, and more generally, I would just say that building electrification pairs very nicely with all other forms of energy improvements, whether it's electric vehicles, renewable energy, energy efficiency. Um, there's an important role that efficient electrification can play alongside all of those efforts. So if you're working within that space, I would just encourage you to keep your eyes open for, for opportunities. And I mean, if you're not in that space, um, there, there still are a lot of things you can do. I mean, do you like engaging your local politicians? Great. Um, what about writing op-eds that can encourage electrification? That's awesome as well. Um, maybe you live uh, in a community with an HOA that you can kind of influence their investments and, and the future installation of electric heat pumps. That would be, that would be fantastic. So um, there, there is a role for efficient electric heat pumps in, in a lot of activities. And I would just say my advice is that um, go forth, familiarize yourself with the solutions, um, what's appropriate in a, in a local context in terms of heat pumps and electrification and um, go out there and, and look for opportunities to influence. Great advice. Thank you so much, Tyler. Denise, what about you? Uh, definitely echo everything Tyler just said. I would mention, so if you if you live in a city or, or state where there is already lots of action on this front, there may well be resources available for you from your local climate or agency or energy agency, for example, in the Bay Area, the, the website BayREN um, can be a great resource. That's an intergovernmental organization that has a bunch of resources on subsidy programs available for electrification. Um, you can check with your local utility, which um, if they're uh, dual fuel or, or an electric utility, electric only utility may actually have uh, supportive resources for you there. So if you're in an area that is already supportive, I would encourage you to look for resources with your um, local climate or energy agency that might be able to help you. And then if your area is not yet supportive in terms of policy or could be more so, uh, I would encourage you to get involved with your local advocacy organizations, um, you know, your local 350 groups, your Sunrise groups, your local Sierra Club chapters, um, many more orgs, or, or start your own. The uh, SF San Francisco Climate Emergency Coalition was really active in getting San Francisco to pass some um, building electrification measures recently. So, you know, talk to your local regulators, find your local champions at your local agencies. Who's the new city council member who might be uh, advocate for this in your region um, and, and build a coalition to start um, pushing, pushing them toward action and then partner with NGOs. Maybe able to, maybe able to help uh, BEI as, as Tyler mentioned is, is a great resource. There are others like, RMI, uh, Building Decarbonization Coalition, NRDC, Sierra Club, and, and many more who have expertise that they can share to help you get started uh, and support you on your journey. Excellent. Uh, another round of excellent recommendations and advice. Um, well, I'll add to the mix and just uh, give a plug for uh, getting involved and getting to know your uh, congressman or woman and senators uh, at the federal level. They are doing a lot right now, and a lot is in motion, and they need to hear from you. And this is a key topic that touches on uh, both home health, public health, uh, energy affordability, equity, and climate change. So um, definitely you know, empower yourself with good information and stats and um, help your elected officials better understand how important this is. Also, I realized I misspoke earlier 
uh, or want to just clarify that the Zero Emission Homes Act was actually initially sponsored by Senator Heinrich of New Mexico, and then he's got 11 co-sponsors, and then there's a, a paired bill in the House. So just want to give a shout out to <laughs> to, to all the sponsors there. Um so I think with that, we'll we'll wrap it up. And thank you both so much for being with me today. It was a great pleasure to speak with you. Um, and Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan climate policy firm. Our mission is to accelerate clean energy by promoting the most effective energy policies. We provide research and analysis for decision makers to accelerate the transition to a low-carbon future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a review if you're liking the show and tag us on social, hashtag electrify this. Uh, so thank you so much, Tyler. Thanks, Sarah. And thank you so much, Denise. Thank you, Sarah. Absolute pleasure. And as always, a huge thanks to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the audio in here in Salt Lake City. And thank you to you, the listeners. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This. Thank you.